much for your kind introduction. Um, just two remarks. First, uh, when you bat sixth in a conference, or seventh, I'm not sure what it is, there's been quite a bit of batting before you, of course. And it would have been fun if I could have written this lecture in, uh, in taking into account uh, the various points that have come up, both in the papers that have gone before and in discussion. And uh, I'm sorry, in a way, I couldn't do that. But I haven't done it, and I haven't uh, changed a word of what I agreed to do and did for uh, the lecture. The other thing is this. Um, Design argument, stepping stone or stumbling block. We've um, we've all had a hearty lunch. It's quite warm in the room. Um, I think we might change the title or adapt the title as one or two speakers have. How about design arguments, stepping stones or stumbling blocks or sleeping pills? Uh, you're you're you're, uh, you're at liberty to nod off. This is a paper about natural theology, about its character, its strengths and its limitations as an apologetic tool, examined from the point of view of those who, generally speaking, speaking of the culture, as it were, downlay natural theology and general revelation, and who stress the supreme importance, if not the sufficiency, of Holy Scripture for our knowledge of God. Natural theology, the term, is to be distinguished from the theology of nature. Those who draw their Christian theology mainly from Holy Scripture usually have no qualms about the idea of a theology of nature, nor of developing it as part of the Bible's testimony to God's creation. The biblical doctrine of creation, the nature psalms, the place of beauty and miracle and order, and the suspension of the entire natural order on the sovereign will of God are fit topics for inclusion in the development of a full-orbed Christian theology. The heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament show us his handiwork. The scriptural testimony to the glory and beauty and God-givenness of nature is on a par with the scriptural testimony about anything, or so it seems. But what of natural theology? Here we enter another realm, not that of integrating the data of physical nature into an overall theological account of things drawn from scripture, but of developing a theology from, from nature using the fact or facts of nature alone to draw theological conclusions. Here we are faced with various types of such argument, and this fact alone makes it unwise to generalise about their value, for perhaps some of them have more value than others. Note, please, that in what follows, we are concerned with, I have been charged with, speaking about the place of such arguments in apologetics. So our question is, are they, or may they be, or may any of them be, as it were, good tools for vindicating, defending, or vindicating key claims of Scripture about the existence and nature of Almighty God to those who rely, at this point at least, not on the authority of Scripture, but solely, on part, solely or on part, on the authority of reason and sense experience. Note, now, this is a yet, a, a yet different question from, is it necessary to have convincing arguments from nature to God in order to establish the rationality or reasonableness of belief in God for myself? Following the, the lead of what these days is called reformed epistemology, it may well be that it is rational for me to believe in God 
without argument, and not to have to defend the rationality of such belief by reference to an independent set of criteria such as what is reasonable or demonstrable. But if so, and I shall not further debate this question here, this does not prevent the use of arguments for apologetic purposes. And while it would be logically circular to suppose that there is scriptural warrant for natural theological arguments which provide support for, for scriptural authority, it would certainly be logically possible to develop a scriptural case for the use of such arguments in apologetics. This is quite apart from the question, yet another question I'm afraid, of whether or not there is such warrant for the development of such arguments as an intrinsically worthwhile thing to do, for its own sake. An interesting issue, but another area, I'm afraid, uh, that I shan't be considering in what remains. Among a posteriori arguments for God's existence, which any argument from nature must be, it is usual, textbooks and so on, to distinguish between cosmological and theological arguments. Arguments from design, as teleological arguments are commonly conventionally called. The distinction is not merely an academic one, and I shall argue that it is of some importance in addressing the topic, even in the general style that I'm adopting in this paper. Cosmological arguments draw their premise or premises from, such basic, from some basic fact of nature, a fact so obvious and basic as to be undeniable, such as the fact that some things move. That's undeniable. At least three such arguments are among Aquinas' five, famous five ways, and cosmological arguments of different varieties have been endorsed by a variety of philosophers and theologians, such as Leibniz, Newton's English disciple Samuel Clarke, and a number of contemporary philosophers theologians. No doubt more, too. The point of the difference between cosmological and teleological arguments from design is that cosmological arguments are generally regarded as being deductive arguments proceeding from such basic, undeniable, a posteriori propositions such as some things move. Those arguments which are regarded as convincing are said to establish by their proponents, they're said to establish by reason that there, that there is a God. That there is a God. Very important, that point in what, for what follows. That there is a God. Whereas it is generally agreed that teleological arguments, arguments from design, proceed from the complexity, orderliness, and interconnectedness of natural phenomena. In other words, from a much more complex set of data. Not simply that some things move, but intricacy, order, beauty, design, connectedness, and the like. And, the like. and seek to establish, or partly to establish, both that there is a God, both that there is a God, and that he is a God of such and such a kind. In other words, more ambitious in a way than a cosmological argument. That there is a God, and that he is a God of such and such a kind. Both that God is, and what God is, is important, therefore, for the, the, is part of the teleological arguments project. If, through being convinced by a cosmological argument, we know that there is a first mover, then in one sense we know a lot. In another sense, we know very little. For we know that there is a first mover, but we do not know anything about what he is, or she is, or it is, and what, is, what they're like, as it were. By contrast, teleological arguments are generally thought by their proponents to be informative about the nature of God. 
They tell us important things about what God is like. They take us further, as it were, than the rather spare project that is a cosmological argument. They're famously illustrated by William Paley's example of the discovery of a watch while out walking on the heath. You'll all have read this. Here's a bit of a quote. Every indication of contrivance, every manifestation of design, which is existed in the watch, exists in the works of nature, with the difference on the side of nature of being greater and more, and that in a degree which exceeds all computation. I mean that the contrivances of nature surpass the contrivances of art, in the complexity, subtlety, and curiosity of the mechanism, and still more, if possible, do they go beyond them in number and variety. And there's, of course, in Paley, very much more than that, and he is frequently not done justice to in the detail with which all this is worked out in his writings. Even someone who does not know what a watch is, on coming across one on a walk in the country, is at once impressed by the intricacy, orderliness, and the apparent purposiveness of its parts, this is Paley, of course, and is strongly inclined to believe that it must have been made. It is unreasonable to believe that it made itself, or that it just happened by accident. By analogy, Paley argued, as the watch, and that's what an argument from design is, it's an argument from analogy, as it is with the watch, so it is with creation. That's basically how it goes. By analogy, Paley argued, as the watch is good evidence of a watchmaker, so the much greater intricacy in nature is good evidence of a nature maker, an intelligent and powerful creator, wise and amazingly skillful. You see, the idea is richer, somewhat richer than the conclusion of a cosmological argument. So the empirical input for, for a typical teleological argument is very much richer than that for a typical cosmological argument, and the logical structure of such arguments is inductive and analogical rather than deductive. Given the complexities of the premises of arguments from design, what can at best be warranted, by way of conclusion, even when we've done all that Paley does in his book, and, and, uh, and all some of us have done by way of examining uh, the natural order, all that is be can best be warranted by way of conclusion is a statement of what is probable or reasonable, given the premises of the argument, rather than that certain conclusions are entailed by the premises. In this respect, arguments from design differ both from cosmological arguments and even more spectacularly, of course, from ontological arguments. Arguments from design continue to appeal to one kind of evangelical apologist. And so it is this type of argument that I shall concentrate on in what follows. However, it's worth noting at the outset that some forms of the argument from design are more abstract than others, produced, shall we say, in black and white rather than in glorious technicolour. Rather old-fashioned, that, isn't it? In his illuminating discussion of the argument from design, the teleological argument, Richard Swinburne distinguishes between spatial and temporal versions of the argument. The argument, the argument from co-presence, as he puts it, and the argument from succession. Arguments from co-presence have to do with the complex arrangements at any one time. Arguments from succession have to do with the orderliness and repeatability of types of events. Swinburne himself relies on relatively abstract forms of the argument, appealing to various types of regularity. And such an approach certainly offers protection from the more anthropomorphic conceptions of God that flow from the technicolour forms of the argument. Even though in other writings, Swinburne himself 
offers a quite anthropomorphic account of God. The less abstract forms of the argument, what Swinburne calls arguments from co-presence, are of course easier to understand by men and women and children of all kinds, and have a greater immediate impressiveness than do more abstract genealogical arguments. Who, this is also rather old-fashioned, who can fail to be stunned by the intricacy of the human eye when it is featured in a moody science film? I think they've probably gone out of business now, but uh, I remember being very impressed, taken up by moody science films and their portrayal of these sorts of things. Moved to confess by the uh, data provided by the film, moved to confess that there must be a designer and engineer of such intricacy who is of unsurpassable intelligence and power. Such data can have strong dramatic impact. But we must continue to hold in the back of our minds that there has been this other strong tradition deriving mainly from Augustine and endorsed by such as Aquinas for which the less abstract forms of the argument have little or no appeal. In the Summa Theologiae, Thomas tells us that it is possible to argue that there is a God, an unmoved mover, or even in another of his five ways that there is evidence of purpose in nature, leaving it to the faith of the Church, drawn from divine self-revelation in Scripture, to fill in the character of the unmoved mover or purpose already in place whose argument, whose existence has been demonstrated by reason, or what the character of his purposes is. At the end of his account of the five ways, in which God's existence is demonstrable according to him, Aquinas concludes, having recognised that a certain thing exists, we have still to investigate the way in which it exists, that we may come to understand what it is that exists. So there's the distinction there between that it exists, what is it that exists. That that, that distinction, the teleological argument, seeks to bridge in a bolder way. Is the development of design arguments in the Paleon manner for use in apologetics something that is warranted by Scripture? When Paul argued in Acts 17 that man made the world and everything in it, sorry, that God made the world and everything in it, that's not quite a Freudian slip, that God made the world and everything in it, that he made one race from one man, and similarly, though with less elaboration at Lystra, remember in Acts 14, is he arguing like Paley, or is Paley arguing like Paul? Does his remark on, in Romans 1.20 that we had read for us, that the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly seen since the creation of the world, warrant Paleyite arguments? I don't know whether Paley himself ever appealed to such data. But in fact, Romans 1.20 has been variously interpreted in the history of Christian thought. Both Thomas Aquinas and Descartes believed that the text was a reference to some form of cosmological argument. Whereas, as we know, or as we should know, John Calvin thought that it was a reference to the operation of the sensus divinitatis, that is usually universally present in all men and women, an idea that he also thought was corroborated by what Cicero says in his The Nature of the Gods, except that naturally enough, Cicero thought nothing about the malfunctioning of the census due to the fall. Certainly Paul's emphasis seems to be placed on what is actually known, and the knowledge of which holds us all accountable, something immediately manifest, rather than on the possibility of developing actual apostle arguments for God's existence by those who are clever enough to do so. 
And in drawing attention to the eternal power and divine nature of God, he seems to be making a stronger claim than the claim that there is an unmoved mover. He outlines a move from the world to God, the conclusion of which there is a God of eternal power who is glorious and immortal, if you remember. Come back to those points later. In thinking further about the worthwhileness of the teleological argument, we need to bear in, in mind its logic. Sorry about that, but we do. It is, as I've stressed, an inductive and a logical argument. What does this mean? Two things, principally. One is that the argument proceeds probabilistically, via the accumulation of evidence, to a conclusion to which it is claimed this evidence points. It does not set out not, and cannot in the very nature of things set out to provide a logical guarantee of God's existence, but to a conclusion of the form, this makes it probable, to some degree, that an intelligent and powerful designer exists, or more boldly, this evidence makes it more probable than not that an intelligent and powerful designer exists. That's, so to speak, the most that we can expect, that it's probable. Some might say, well, yes, that's, that's the most that we can expect, but then that's pretty good, isn't it? To have evidence from the intricacies of nature that probabilifies to some degree the existence of an intelligent and powerful designer is a result worth having. For depending upon the strength of the probability that we believe the evidence provides, it gives theism some kind of presumption. And in an apologetic, such a presumption is something worth having. But we need to note something that might curb our growing, any growing enthusiasm for the design position that we may have. It certainly ought to. This is that a true induction of the evidence must be a full induction. And we cannot, in all honesty, cherry-pick, taking the evidence that suits our hypothesis that an intelligent and powerful designer exists and ignoring the counter-evidence. There is wonderful beauty and adaptedness in the human eye, but there is also the existence of cataracts and glaucoma. And, of course, there's the liver fluke and cancers and asthma and 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 and. However positive we may feel about the positive evidence, this negative evidence ought to lead us to feel less positive. For it is evidence against the hypothesis. So the analogies between the watchmaker and the intelligent designer, there can be ranged a series of disanalogies. It is at such a point as this in the argument, the point where not only evidence for the hypothesis, but also counter-evidence is to be weighed, that Philo, one of the dialogue partners in David Hume's Dialogues Concerning Natural Religion, ought to be on the curriculum of the London Theological Seminary, in my view, has this to say about the proponent of the design hypothesis. The world, for aught he knows, is very faulty and imperfect, compared to a superior standard, and was only the first rude essay of some infant deity, who about, or afterwards abandoned it, ashamed of his lame performance. It is the work only of some dependent, inferior deity, and is the object of derision to his superiors. It is a production of old age and dotage in some superannuated deity. And ever since his death, has run, run on as adventures from the first impulse and active force which it received from him. That's David Hume's dialogues concerning natural religion. That is expressed in less caustic language than Hume's, the total evidence is seriously ambiguous. And even granted that we can get so far as to propose creation, what kind of, of creator or creators does it suggest? Who is he or they like? What's his or their nature? Hume's point, through Philo, 
is that the total evidence of a good in, or a good induction of such evidence is compatible with a whole range of alternative hypotheses. It is just as likely that the world is the creation of a committee of gods, or of a finite god, or a god in old age or in infancy, as it is the creation of the infinite eternal god of Christian theology. There's a difference in apologetic, apologetic strategy, then, between the use of an argument from design, given the existence of God, postulated by reason or made known to us by special revelation, and the use of such an argument to attempt to establish the existence of God ab initio. I should like to take a moment or two to underline this. If we don't see this point, then the argument from design may present us with a dilemma. Suppose that, apologetically speaking, we look to it in its technicolor form, its moody science film form, focusing upon the regularities of co-presence for our doctrine of God, that is, for our understanding and approach to the nature of God. This seems to be the way the argument is popularly used in evangelical apologetics, if it is used at all. And let us leave out of consideration the point just made about the comparability of the evidence with rival compatibility of the evidence with rival theological hypotheses, though I don't want to retract that. We cannot get any further as to the nature of the God that the argument existed, establishes than the evidence from nature takes us. And the result must be, leaving aside these other points, the result must be an anthropomorphic God. So, in other words, it has a kind of rather awkward theological payoff seems to me, the argument from design and approaches like it. So far, those, so for those who wish to assert that God the Creator transcends his creation, that in his, es in his essence he is distinctly non-human-like, outside time and space, simple and immutable, the design approach appears to be taking us entirely the other direction. To a God who is a super-watch super designer, and like a watch designer, works in time and space, has fingers and a brain, pre-existing materials which he fashions, and a workshop in which he works. He makes trial runs as capable, capable of doing better than he has so far managed to do in the manufacture of watches, and so on. To the extent that we are not anthropomorphic in our understanding of God, but regard such figures as the necessary accommodating of God's transcendence to our weakness, to that extent the design approach is not helpful and may be positively unhelpful as a sole or central apologetic tool. If we deny that such things are true of God, we are flouting the evidence provided by the design approach. For if we begin to qualify the possible gods of the design approach, to protest that the biblical God, our God, is not like that, but on the contrary, that he is a spirit, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable, to that extent we are saying the design approach is beside the point. But were it to be successful in convincing us that God is like a watchmaker, then in fact it would deliver another God than the biblical God. Unless, of course, you think the biblical, the Bible teaches that God really has ears. We must approach the problem in another way. Well, we may approach the problem in another way. In our theological thinking, we must, of course, distinguish God from his providential working. His providence is what he has chosen to do or to commit. And our understanding of it must be constructed from what we know of his ways. But it's a serious mistake to suppose that God is what he does. That what he does exhausts the being of God. 
Yet this is what the design approach is committed to, or at least what it is in serious danger of being committed to when it is used as the sole approach to establishing the existence of God from nature, central, as it were, apologetic too. When God, when Paul wrote that God's invisible attributes are clearly perceived in the things that have been made, he clearly regards our perceptions as evidence of some greater transcendent reality. What is visible is evidence of what is necessarily invisible, a divine nature of a God of eternal power and wisdom. But it's not so clear that the technical design approach can make such a move from the visible to the invisible, from the imminent to the transcendent, in so clear and convincing way. Allow me to develop this point even, even further. The Christian culture of which we are a part is characterized by a strong anthropomorphic idea, emphasis in its idea of God, a strong anthropomorphic emphasis in its idea of God. Its chief desire is not to have a God who is a watchmaker, but one who is near and who will sympathize, even one who will suffer alongside us. This anthropomorphic mood, the positing of a God who is above all things familiar, affects everything. The lyrics of our worship songs, the way in which people try to cope with the evils of their lives, the doctrine of divine providence, and so on. It is even seen, I think, in popular Christology. I wonder how many think that when God became man, he ceased to be God, or ceased to be that God. Are our churches characterized by a robust two-natures Christology? I rather doubt it, though my evidence is only anecdotal. There are various reasons for this turn to anthropomorphism. Some have to do with philosophical sea changes, the influence of Hegel and Hegelianism in the development of modern Protestant liberal theology. From, for he, from Hegel we get a God who develops, who realises himself through history, and so who mutates and matures. Other reasons have to do with moral anxieties. After the Holocaust, and in a culture which through the media, in which through the media the evils which affect people on the far side of the world as well as those that are close at hand, buffet us every night. Men and women want a God who is alongside us. God cannot or does not prevent such evils, and he certainly does not prevent them. Then the second best is a God whose nature is to laugh when we laugh, and to weep when we weep. Added to these powerful influences, I believe, is that provided by the anthropomorphic God or gods of the design approach. He is human, all too human. May this not be another case of the danger of us creating a god in our image, in this case, the image of the technologist. Change of subject, intelligent design and evolution by random natural selection. One obstacle in the path of those who favour the design approach is said to be the theory of evolution by random natural selection. This brings me to say a word or two about what is regarded as the current saviour from the alleged atheism of such a doctrine, the idea of intelligent design. I've no wish here to dwell on its internal features nor on its problems. Let us take it on its own estimate of itself. We can fairly see from what we have been discussing that intelligent design is a participant in what I've been calling the design approach to natural theology and to apologetics. It's in the teleological argument family, as it were. And it offers falsifying evidence against the theory of evolution by natural, that is, random selection, which I'll call for short TENS, T-E-N-S, or certain forms or parts of this theory. For it argues that given certain pieces of evidence, evolution cannot be minutely incremental, but must involve step changes, and that these step changes are data that are manifestly the result of intelligence. 
such data tend to the falsification of tens and to support a, a modified view, presumably, of the theory of evolution, or to, to support what is commonly called the design hypothesis. As it is usually presented, tens, the theory of evolution, is a series of, or one gigantic instance of, a just so story. Necessarily, everything that has so far survived, like rats and the human race, supports tens, and everything that has failed to survive, like the dodo and the saber-toothed tiger, also supports it. The head markings of the gold crest, say, or the colour of a blackbird's beak, cannot be explained in any other way than that either they have been necessary for that species' survival to the present, in a way that we may not be able to specify, or that they have not so far fatally interfered with its capacity to survive. In my view, if tens is to be regarded as a serious scientific hypothesis, and not simply an ideology about the origins of, of life in our world, it has to be falsifiable. For as Karl Popper and others have plausibly maintained, falsifiability is intrinsic to science. If a theory is compatible with all the impossible theory in inverted commas, as it were, is compatible with all the impossible evidence, then it is not a scientific theory about that evidence, but something else, metaphysics perhaps, or myth, as Popper himself suggested. So efforts to provide hypotheses that could falsify tens scientifically and evidence for the truth of these hypotheses are to be applauded. Scientific theories should be tested to destruction. But other than to serve this, that very useful function, the function of setting up evidence that may conflict with tens and testing, as it were, as a consequence, it does not seem to me that intelligent design has any other important or distinctive purpose, certainly not an important place in Christian apologetics. In any case, believers in tens are well aware of the need for falsifiability. For example, according to them, if it could be shown that both human and dinosaur remains occurred in the same fossil record, that would disprove modern evolution. Why, if what we desire is an argument from design, is ID, getting into this uh, um, abbreviation, ID an improvement on good old-fashioned tens? If the one is a design argument, then may not the other be. May not tens be a design argument. The fact that the knee joint is a special evidence of intelligent design, if it is, is no different in principle than the fact that it is possible to account for the intricacy and fecundity of the natural order from features, features present at the Big Bang. What is marvellous, if we wish to have an argument from, for design, from design, on the hypothesis of a Big Bang, is the power and potential of that first event, the occurrence of a cosmic stem cell of an imaginable, unimaginable potential. That event may not be explicable, but it is presumably not self-generated. It looks incoherent to suppose that the Big Bang caused itself. Its existence as such is either an ultimate brute physical fact, or the effect of some creative fiat. And together with the components of and the occurrence of this first event, there is the stability of the natural order giving rise to the amazing, amazing regularities of succession, which have enabled this event to develop this potential so amazingly. We are told that if the universe had... I am told, this is an argument from authority, I am told that if the universe had expanded differently after the Big Bang, by a rate of only one part in a million million, then as a result, there will be no stars and planets to support life. And an increase of just 1% in the strong nuclear force would have ruled out the formation of carbon. A decrease of 4% would have meant that the only atoms would have been of hydrogen. So if a knee joint is good evidence of intelligent design, then how much more so is the first event 
or how much equally so, if you like, is the first event and the environmental stability that we are told was necessary for the first event to develop as it did, and from which, on the hypothesis of TEDS, the knee joint developed by surviving countless trials and errors in locomotion. Any reluctance to draw this conclusion may be due to a concentration on one kind of design. But there are not only watch designers, there are also designers of cakes, where a small change in the ingredients of the baking conditions may be in a very different, totally inedible product. So I don't think that ID is such good news for the design approach apologet, or changes the logical terms of debate in this area. In addition, there are, as I hinted already, some serious theological issues which often get overlooked in the ID project, the design approach project in general. And I want to take a few moments, if you'll bear with me, to glance at these. So I want to talk about some features of divine creation, not, I think, addressed so far in this conference. Proponents of the design approach, whether they are classical paleites or the more recent ID folk, share a common theological outlook which has difficulties. And, if you like, so do the theistic evolutionists, insofar as they provide themselves with space in the same camp. They make the assumption that the very idea of divine creation is itself unproblematic. We use phrases like creatio ex nihilo, before the creation, before time, the first moment of time, and so forth, as if their meaning is immediately clear, or pretty clear. We imagine it to be something like this, I think. There was nothing, and then there was something. And the something came into being by divine fiat, and what came into being in this way was almost immediately wonderfully, beautifully made. We don't puzzle, stop to puzzle about this and then. We may even think that what came into being first was primeval soup, without form and void, and that God acted upon it like a potter fashions the clay, only more so. Then the question becomes, can we, for the purposes of apologetics, sever the creation, whatever precise account we give of it, from the creator, and use it to make his existence more probable than not? What is creation out of nothing? The phrase, creation out of nothing, is extremely weird. It is not a case of creation out of something, namely nothing. The point of the expression is to single that God's creation is unique, unparalleled, and that it is not a case of anything that we would normally call creation, like creating a meal, or a portrait, or a stink. That is, in, creating, in considering the Christian theological idea of creation, we need sharply to distinguish between creation and development. Personally, I'm extremely wary of trying to map Genesis 1 onto any presently believable scientific picture. Nevertheless, the opening words of that chapter do seem to indicate that the, the act of creation was the coming into being, as regards the material creation, of a formless dark void. What follows that, the so-called days of creation, a phrase that doesn't occur in Genesis 1, is logically speaking the development of that void into a lighted, ordered, natural world full of examples of kinds of things even though the creation of man, at least insofar as mankind is made in the image of God, looks discontinuous with this development of the void. What enabled B.B. Warfield, that doubter upholder of the Reformed faith, to regard tens with equanimity was just this distinction between creation proper, if we might call it, and development. The development was from the original potency 
of the world's stuff, as we might call it. The world's stuff being the original act of creation, creatio ex nihilo, the product of creatio ex nihilo. But this development, the finishing of the work of creation, a word that does occur in Genesis 1 and 2, does not take place apart from God, naturally, that is, deistically. But it was, of course, a case of the upholding and governing hand of God over every detail through the means of what sometimes we call secondary causes, namely the causal potency of the matter of the original creation. Warfield sets out these points in his discussion of Calvin's view of the creation, which he understands in terms of this sharp distinction between creation and development, and which he clearly endorses. Here, what is at issue, of course, is not Warfield's view of Calvin, which has been contested, but what his treatment of Calvin reveals of his own views. The six days of creation would, on Warfield's view, be better described as the six days of finishing, or the six days of development. In the course of expounding Calvin's doctrine of creation, which, as I have said, Warfield appears to endorse and to appropriate, he says, with Calvin, while the perfecting of the world as, it, as its subsequent government is a process, creation, strictly conceived, tended to be thought of as an act. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. After that, it was not creation, strictly so-called, but formation, gradual modelling into form, which took place. And then Warfield quotes Calvin himself. But I'll skip that. Similarly, with our attitude to phrases such as the first moment of time and before creation. The first moment of time is not like the first moment of the film or of my life. Before my first moment, there were other moments. But before the first moment, there could not be any previous moments. So what is this before? Before the first moment. What's all that about? And if you think that such questions are too abstruse and speculative, then ask yourself the question, what do you suppose that Titus understood by Paul's claim that God, who does not lie, promised eternal life before the beginning of time? Titus 1-2. All I mean to do here is to note with you the queerness, queerness of such sentences. And to suggest that they should weaken our confidence that we may readily understand the Christian doctrine of creatio ex nihilo and regard an evidence approach to establishing it as a fact, as unproblematic. If the idea of creatio ex nihilo is hard to understand as it is, then any evidence for it that the design approach provides would be correspondingly difficult to evaluate. Implicit in these remarks, at least I hope it is, implicit in these remarks is the distinction between deism and theism. The biblical picture is not that the products of the first moment of creation, whatever exactly they were, once they were in place, were then left to the vagaries of an impersonal and somewhat hostile environment. Rather, the move from darkness to light and from formlessness to form, however accounted for, was itself a divinely instigated business. Akin this time, I now, as it were, to the human activity of creating something out of something else. That is, providence, development, is every bit as much a divine activity as creation, narrowly, properly speaking, creatio ex nihilo. But, and this is vital, according to the Church's confession, both creation and development, both creation and providence, are ordered from a standpoint outside the creation. The puzzlement we experience in thinking about the first act of creation, creation out of nothing, is doubled, if not more, if we think with the Church Fathers, the Medievals, Reformers, and with, where are we, the John Owen Centre? John Owen? And Jonathan Edwards, 
And all who subscribe to the great confessions of faith ex animo, well, God is outside time or timeless or timelessly eternal. It's not my purpose to try to begin to take any of these questions further here, or even to say much more about them, but rather to unsettle us, to unsettle those who adopt the design approach, or who readily permit themselves to say things like, the Big Bang is the beginning of time, or the first moment, or to make it less obvious that tens is unacceptable because it is necessarily naturalistic. It may be unacceptable, but not for that reason, because this development of what occurred at the initial act of divine creation is, from a theistic point of view, every bit as much a providential ordering as are the hairs of our head. That was Warfield's point. Random mutations may not be what we expect from God, but this has by no means been the only surprise that he has had in store for us, if it's true. This whole area is deeply weird from a theological and philosophical point of view. We're often inclined to surrender some of this. That's what I'm banging on about, really. We're often inclined to surrender some of this weirdness, mystery, if you like, by adopting a starting point that we are not committed to by it, in our eagerness to make the terms of debate more readily manageable or imaginable. But in doing this, we may surrender or compromise some of the features that are essential to biblical theism, the shape of which has been sharpened over the centuries of Christian thought, and which is a part of our heritage. So I'm arguing that evidence approach apologetics, whether it's theological argument, ID, theistic evolution, if it is used to set the terms of the debate about the nature of God, is a theologically risky strategy, which is as likely as not to dull important theological distinctions and to result in a highly anthropomorphic doctrine of God. And that this is so, whether we think of design in terms of classical paleism, recent intelligent design, or in terms of the theory of evolution by natural selection. Before trying to lift us out of this gathering gloom, as regards the design approach in apologetics, there is one other factor that is to be added, another dilemma, if you like, another bit of gloom. We may, prompted by the consideration that we've just noted, be tempted to swing to the other extreme, to separate Christian faith and its theology from current science altogether. But this too carries its dangers, as I shall briefly note. At this point, we need to return briefly to the distinction we made earlier between a theology of nature and natural theology. A theology of nature is an attempt to fit an account of physical nature into an account of the nature and purpose of Almighty God. As the Christian theological endeavour is usually understood, this involves attempting to spell out truths about God from Scripture and nature and their relation. We've been striving to this in this conference. But it seems difficult to do that without saying things that are true about nature. And it's hard to see how this can be done without com- being committed to some scientific account of nature. Otherwise, we surrender the controlling idea, or what should be a controlling idea, it seems to me, of the unity of truth. Surely a vital principle. Whatever the difficulties, it's hard to see how a proposition can express a theological truth and a scientific falsehood, or scientific truth and a theological falsehood for Christians. So we're driven in developing a theology of nature, let alone a natural theology, of what's been preoccupying us chiefly in this lecture, in developing a theology of nature, also to say something about science or so it seems. Various strategies for avoiding a commitment to the unity of truth do not seem very appealing. One could claim that science has not ever expressed true scientific propositions. 
to adopt instrumentalism as a philosophy of science. To hold that science provides a series of prescriptions, you know, how to get a jumbo jet up, for example, but no true descriptions, no true descriptions. It's like a recipe book or a how-to-do-it how book, as it were. At the other extreme, one might so stress the presence of divine accommodation in the language of Scripture as to hold to a form of instrumentalism here, while holding that science, or science alone, gives us truths. The theologian, I was amused to find this, the theologian Kenneth Cancer, known to some perhaps, is reported as saying that the Bible gives us divinely revealed misinformation about God. Quite a conservative chap, wasn't he? I presume that there is some, some divinely revealed misinformation about God in Scripture, because he doesn't have a backside or a nose, though we're told he has both. Such misinformation is not the result of the incapacity of the informer, however, nor is it designed to mislead us, rather the reverse. But it's surely going too far to suppose that all that is revealed about God is such misinformation, if indeed that's what Kant intended. Since this seems to reduce to a sort of theological instrumentalism, involving a good deal of agnosticism, the purpose, is, the purpose of such instrumentality being to enable pilgrims to make progress without telling them very much at all that is true. At that point, the prospect of a theology of nature seems to vanish. So what are we to do? We might preserve the tension between the two, not by denying scientific truth or theological truth, or by putting each of them in separate rooms and so developing a theory of twofold truth, some of the medievals flirted with that idea, but by keeping them at opposite ends of the same room. <coughs> this seems to me to be the wisest of the alternatives. There is great danger in understanding scripture in terms of some scientific account or some quasi-scientific account produced by Christians. Uh, whether it concerns the movement or immobility of the earth and, or sun or the belief that the times of Genesis 1 can only be understood in terms of Aristotelian forms or of tens. For theories of solar and planetary motion have changed and Aristotelianism is not self-evidently true. And there, may yet, and there may yet be shown to be decisive evidence against tens, or present versions of tens, or some as yet undetected theological, the, theological, sorry, some as yet undetected theoretical flaw in its formulation. Nonetheless, there is presumably some, some account of the natural kind. That is, that is the true account. And some account of the stars and their orbits. That is the truth of the matter and some account of the natural history of the universe that is correct. Nevertheless, we do well, I believe, to be self-critical about our readiness to believe that the latest scientific theory expresses the final truth, and to heed the salutary question addressed by the Lord Joe, mentioned by others in this conference, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Tell me if you have understanding. So far I have argued that natural theology must be distinguished from a theology of nature, that the design approach, even the successful as an apologetic strategy, is in danger of delivering an anthropomorphic God, that intelligent design presents no better or worse a case for the existence of a designer than does the evidence provided by the Big Bang and the theory of evolution by natural selection, that we need to exercise caution in view of the oddity of the ideas of creation, ex nihilo, the beginning of time, divine timelessness, and not, really, not, not readily surrender these. Finally, we need to be aware of the dilemma between developing a theology of nature that is too closely aligned to current natural science, or natural anything, but also one that is too distant from contemporary natural science, lest we imperil the ideal of 
the unity of truth. These remarks that I've made so far are mainly cautionary, negative, if you like. So I shall try to strike a more positive note before I close, but I know that I shan't altogether succeed. Firstly, it's possible to be more positive in regard to the design approach than I have been so far by bearing one further point in mind. We have stressed that intrinsic to the argument for design or the design approach is that it is an argument that probabilifies the conclusion that there is an intelligent designer of the universe. Of course, the caustic remarks by David Hume do not by themselves invalidate that conclusion. They, make it, they, they rather make it unreasonable to identify such a designer with the God of Christian Sayers. But what if we make the design approach part of a more cumulative case for the Christian faith? Doing that might at one and the same time qualify its tendencies to take us in the direction of anthropomorphism and also allow us to develop an apologetic in which, by the accumulation of various arguments, including sound arguments from the design approach, may increase the overall probability of Christian affairs. For example, arguments from religious experience, from miracles, from responses to the problem of evil, from providence, morality, beauty, and so on. Second, I must say a word rather late in the day about apologetics since this paper is intended as a contribution to Christian apologetics, not much of a Christian, not much of a contribution, you may think. Apologetics, the business of offering apologiae for the Christian faith, or some part of it, is presumably a part of the missionary and evangelistic calling of the Church. That strategy is set by the Great Commission. It is, where the words are still in a comprehensive sense, the preaching of the Gospel. The New Testament also indicates the manner of such preaching. I am among you as one who serves. The servant is not greater than his master. I was with you in weakness and fear, but trembling, not in plausible words of wisdom. For what we preach is not ourselves, but Christ, Jesus, Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. To the Jews became I as a Jew, in order to win Jews. The New Testament is full of such expressions. The Church fulfills her mandate when her preachers preach Christ in the manner in which Christ should be preached. Manner and matter go together. That, in a nutshell, is the strategy. There is not, as part of that strategy, I believe, something in addition, namely a revealed apologetic system. I'd say there is no more a revealed apologetic system than there is a revealed way of heating church buildings. But there is a revealed gospel and a revealed way of spreading it. That This way of spreading it is, naturally enough, often given to us in Scripture in the form of examples. If the preaching of Christ in the manner in which Christ ought to be preached is the church's strategy, what then are the tactics? I'd say that offering the apologiae, defences, is one type of tactic. In the case of tactics, there are no separate ends, but the means, the apologetic tactics are justified, the apologetic tactics are justified by the end or ends. In this case, the proclamation of the gospel. This surely is clear enough from the New Testament. Paul preaches, delivering his, his apologia for the gospel, differently in Lystra and Athens than in Antioch and Thessalonica. So what is Paul doing? What are his tactics? What are his tactics? They differ from place to place. In Antioch and Thessalonica, he presupposes the Old Testament and Israel's divine election. In Lystra, he appeals to the evidence of our common humanity. In Athens, he boldly commandeers an alien culture, quoting Greek poets and the like. In Corinth, or rather to the Corinthians, Paul adopts, appears to adopt yet another tactic. Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. Yet, Paul's distancing himself from both Jews and Greeks must not be misunderstood, however. He discounts the wisdom of the world 
yet later in his letter, reason, reasons, co- reasons cogently in defense of the bodily resurrection, taking as his starting point the gospel witness. In turning his back on the wisdom of the world, Paul is not turning his back on all thought or on all reasoning. Even when he's preaching Christ crucified and distinguishing himself from both Jew and Greek, Paul is reasoning in doing so. So where does apologetics fit into this? Apologetics, I believe, is in the business of making a space, intellectual, cultural, religious space, if you like, for the gospel to do its work. It aims to remove prejudices, mistakes, misinformation, willful ignorance of the gospel, start from where people are, to using Karl Barth's ambiguous phrase, a point of contact. Apologetics is person-relative and culture-relative. It has the difficult task of manifesting the gospel to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. One, one gospel in many different circumstances. In the absence of a revealed apologetic, the devising of apologetic arguments and, pro- and approaches is a case where is and ought come close together. We may note the varied ways that Christ spe- speaks in parables, solemn warnings, sarcasm, critique, and the various ways in which the apostles preach together with the even more varied ways in which men and women are brought to Christ, and we let what we discover influence how the gospel ought to be angled. So apologetics is concerned not with the creation and preservation of a system. The very first time I went to the United States, I was collared by some young student who said, shook me to the core of my being, he said, and what is your apologetic system? Um, and to this day, I thought I've been embarrassed by that, the fact that I didn't have anything to say. We may note the very ways in Christ, which Christ speaks, in parables, solemn warnings, sarcasm, critique, and the very ways in, the, in which the apostles preach, together with the even more varied ways in which men and women are brought to Christ, and we, we let what we discover influence how the gospel ought to be angled. So apologetics is concerned not with the creation and preservation of a system, but by the very opposite, with empathy, imagination, appropriation, inventiveness. Put more formally, Christian apologetics has as its aim to convince, to prove or make reasonable to men and women the truth of the Christian faith or some aspect of it or some presupposition of it. There are some necessary conditions for the sake of any such endeavour that it is important to appreciate. First, if one is going to attempt to prove a conclusion or to render a conclusion more probable than not in the eyes of one's conversation partner, then necessarily one has to start from premises or from a point of view <coughs> that he or she accepts. For the aim is to advance one's partner's knowledge or reasonable belief. So necessarily, necessarily, the apologetic role is a person relative role with an eye not only on demonstration, not principally on demonstration, perhaps, but on persuasion. Suppose two people, one with a firm grasp on the idea that what we have sensory experience of is not all that exists but with a vague belief that it comes from somewhere or someone, and another firmly and resolutely atheistic individual. The design approach in Christian apologetics might be appropriate in the first case, but I have been implying not as appropriate in the second. Suppose that there is someone with bits and pieces of beliefs about the orderliness of nature, etc. An accumulative case approach might be an intelligent strategy to adopt. But this, even this approach, I'm afraid to say, stopping on another uh, negative note, uh, this, uh, ne- uh, 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 even this approach to apologetics also carries its dangers. Particularly the danger that the criteria for success will swamp the criteria for intellectual integrity. For in our zeal to prevent, pre- present convincing apologia for our faith, 
We must be careful not to commit the immorality and folly of using falsehoods as premises for true conclusions. Shall we do evil that good may come? But falling into this error is not, alas, one that Christians, even evangelical Christians, are altogether innocent of. Thank you very much for listening.